near sideline. Trinaman is there. Makes the catch at the 30, 20, 10, and just like that! Touchdown, Cougars! On the first play of the game! Takes it down the right side of the lane, right to the rim, scoop, and a score! It rolls around and drops down. Takes this free kick and curls it inside the left post. What a goal! He's been on the headset for the last quarter century of BYU sports. Now, he's on BYU Radio every week as we go behind the mic with Greg Rubel. Here's your host, the voice of the Cougars, Greg Rubel. Hello, good evening, Cougar Nation, and a warm welcome back inside Studio 2 at the BYU Broadcasting Building on the Brigham Young University campus here in Provo, Utah, for our latest episode of Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel. A weekly triple header of Cougar conversations that I hope you enjoy as we discuss current BYU sports events and some of our favorite Cougar sports memories with those who made them. I love the chance to go in-depth with my weekly guests. I trust that you do, too, and enjoy the chance to hear what they have to say in an up-close and personal way. We're glad you're along, either listening live on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143, org, and the BYU Radio app or via podcast on demand by subscribing to BYU Behind the Mic with Greg Grubel on all major podcast platforms. You can also get the archived version of the show on our Behind the Mic show page at byuradio.org, at which you can also get a podcast of this program. On tonight's show, football with former Cougar linebacker and current BYU TV analyst David Nixon. The world of running with BYU Hall of Famer and current head track and field and men's cross-country coach Ed Eyestone. And basketball with former Cougar hoopster Mark Bigelow. Mark's interview featured on our Catching Up with the Cougars segment sponsored by BYU alumni. And we start tonight's show by welcoming for the first time on this program, not the last time, a one-time standout, an outside linebacker for BYU, a starter in parts of all or all of uh, parts or all of four seasons. He was. Uh, Part of 43 and a half tackles for loss over those four years, including a dozen sacks. He also excelled in pass coverage with a combined 17 career picks and pass breakups. He was a heavy hitter and a great communicator, both as a team captain and now as a broadcaster. He is David Nixon. David, welcome to Behind the Mic. Hey, I appreciate it. Feels good to uh, to be here. Don't have to put on the makeup like I do with BYU TV. <laughs> so this feels this feels good to be here and kind of relaxed uh, this evening. Yeah, you're in the building a lot, just not necessarily in Studio 2 all the time. So thank you for coming in and uh, making some room in your schedule for this radio appearance. And again, we'll have you on certainly in uh, weeks to come. So uh, now that we have you in, and here we are four games into what we hope is a 14-game schedule for BYU, uh, what were the impressions you had in August that have modified now here as we approach October? Well, obviously, I think it's some of the same impressions that uh, you know most fans have out there as far as the offense being a little stagnant. And I think the thing with with me that looking at it is as a defensive player, you always you know I, I play with John Beck and Max Hall, where offense never really was an issue. We were always putting up points and mo- being able to move the ball. Uh, but I think with this, this offense has been tough to watch because they never quite get on, get on track. They never quite get in a rhythm. And, and I think there's a lot of talent there to be showcased, but they, you know, with the opportunities they have, they're just not quite taking full advantage of them. So I think that's been the struggle and the, the disappointing part about this, this football team so far as the offense. Um, defense, you know, they've gone up against great offenses. And, and frankly, you know, they've, you know they, they've, they've struggled getting off the field at times as well. Um, and you know, going into this season, we knew we had so much talent. You had Tanner coming back, and you had Fred Warner, and you had Tijon Caroma. You had a lot of playmakers coming back, and it's been, I think, for BYU fans, a little disappointed that they haven't been able to produce or 
really even be competitive per se. But with that being said, you played some great teams up front, and that I mean, that schedule was front loaded. And frankly, I don't know how many people came into the season thinking, yeah, we're going to go three and one, or we're going to go two and two in those first four games. I think the realistic approach was we'll probably go one and three. But I think where the disappointment comes is the fact that BYU just wasn't super competitive, right? And you're getting blown out against Wisconsin and LSU. Um, and, and we were talking as former players. I was talking with Brian Keel and a couple other guys. In our days, we just we, we never really blown out. And, and I'll, I'll make this disclaimer. We, we, we weren't playing against this type of caliber teams either, right? We weren't playing LSU. We weren't playing Wisconsin top 10 teams. But we were playing some pretty good talent in Boston College and Arizona and things like that. Um, but it's, it's tough to watch them get blown out, right? Not even be competitive. And as a fan, it's tough because you're like, man, let's, just, let's be in this game. Let's see some fight. Um, but overall, I think the bye week came at a perfect time. It's a time to regroup and, and, and say, listen, we've still got two-thirds of the season left. Let's go out there and make something of it. So I had Brian on the show just last week, as it turned out. And, uh, and this is apropos because one of the things that did happen with your teams, especially Junior Caesar, was you would lose a couple games early. And you would you find yourself say one and two. And it's time to bounce back, and you guys would do that and go on a big roll uh, toward you know in October, November, and finish off with double digit wins. So the BYU team we see now has a chance to do that. That is to recover from the rough start and get rolling. But it starts Friday night. Exactly. And I remember having Craig Bills and, and Taysom Hill, who are both brother in laws of mine. Uh, you know they've had they had a couple years in there as well where they started off slow. And I remind them each time, hey, there's still an opportunity at hand. You can you can still you can still go out there and win 10, 11 straight. Uh, and, and get back into the rankings. And that's the beauty of college football is a lot of those rankings, the national rankings, are, are based off, you know, are you, putting, are you, are you getting on a roll? Can, can you string together some wins? And we were able to do that my, really my, my sophomore and junior year. We were able to, you know, we lost early and won late and won the Mountain West Conference those years. And so there, there's definitely an opportunity at hand. And, and they can still, I mean, believe it or not, they can still go win out and probably get ranked towards the end of the season because, because once again, you're on a roll and, you, and you've put together that string. So, there, there's still some opportunity there. Um, I just think that a lot of people are a little, a little hesitant to to get too excited because of what they showed on the field the first four games. But once again, the bye week comes at a perfect time where you kind of self evaluate and you have a chance to take a step back and say, "All right, let's what do we need to fix and and let's get that stuff fixed and let's let's make, let's make a run at this." Visiting with former BYU linebacker, current BYU TV analyst David Nixon here in studio behind the mic. BYU at Utah State on Friday night. So BYU has this chance to do again those previous teams did and and bounce back and roll and and uh, and if you look at the era of independence. Uh, September is a month that kind of hovers slightly above 500, and then October and November win rates shoot up. And that's what happens with a front-loaded schedule. And so, in a way, it's kind of more of the same, but just to an an exaggerated extent because of how the offense has struggled. No one expects to see of 129 teams, BYU be 129 in scoring offense. That does not compute to anybody who has any BYU football history. That doesn't it doesn't jive. It, it doesn't make sense. And so that's the staggering part. I think people could uh, be more at ease or more come to more to terms with the start if it was more like last year's. Let's say where you're one and three, but you could easily have been three and one, four and zero. Oh. You're just a player two away. Hasn't been a player two away this time around. That makes it different. And I think again, the offensive struggles are what kind of jar everybody right now, and they need to see something. Uh, happen in the way of progress and soon. And and if there was a team to bring that out of you, you think, David, it might be Utah State. Uh, that's a team that historically BYU does well against, scores well against, and uh, it, again, is, is a little uh, fairer of a competition level from the kind that BYU just saw in weeks uh, two, three, and four. Yeah, I, I think going into the season, when you, when you looked at the schedule during the summertime, you were thinking, okay, this, you know, you were, you were going down with the pin and you're saying this one's a win, this one's a loss, you know, this is a win, 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 loss, whatever it may be. And sure enough, Utah State, I think everyone 
penciled up a, a win on, in, next to Utah State. But now we go after this bye week and we see what Utah State did. They ended up putting up more points against San Jose State than Utah did at home, and, and BYU and Utah State did it at San Jose State. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think fans start to get a little nervous, and, and we'll see what happens with the quarterback play. Bo Hodgins going out there again, and we, you know we'll see how he, he fares up in, on the road in a different environment and a tough environment. I, I remember playing there. My uh, senior year, and it was it was a little hostile there. I mean, those, those fans get after you, and they're and the way the stadium is, they sit right on top of you as well. Right, it's a smaller stadium, kind of more in- intimate setting, um, and so we'll see how those guys react. But yeah, it's it's not going to be an easy game, and 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 you got to remember Utah State. A lot of these guys were overlooked by BYU. They weren't recruited to BYU, or they played at BYU or played already. At BYU, <laughs> and they've got chips on their shoulders. They got something to prove. And and I remember during the Mountain West Conference play, that was always the thing with with BYU is we'd always get everyone's best shot uh, and you'd go on the road to, to Wyoming or you go anywhere call, you know Carl State they all consider BYU their rival because we were you know, at the time we won two of the three Mountain West Conference Championships mm-hmm. in my last three years and so um, you know it's the same scenario with Utah State they I think they have a chip on their shoulder they have something to prove and, and quite frankly they, they they're riding high they've got some confidence because they've been able to put us some points and string some you know string some decent games together where BYU is kind of down the dumps and so emotionally we'll see how that comes into play as well there's a lot of intriguing storylines with this game and that I think that's what is is going to make this game so fun Friday night is is what how does it all unfold really and I think you hit it right there it's I think it has more intrigue than maybe ever before because of how desperate BYU is and must be right now this is a turnaround game this is a a springboard game to the rest of the season. Uh, Utah State wants the game for the reasons they always want to beat BYU. BYU kind of needs this game to prove to themselves that they're still the good football team they thought they could be. It could be psychologically damaging to fall to 1-4, and four, look at four straight losses with a couple of tough games coming on the back end with Boise, Mississippi State uh, on the other end. I-, I think it's a massive game for BYU. That's why I'm so excited about it, because I want to see how these guys respond. Uh, if there was ever a time to, to, uh, you know, to take execution and put it on a par with emotion and motivation, this might be the week where it's super important that BYU get a result that, again, puts them in a place where they can say, yeah, goals can still be met this year. 100%. The difference between uh, between being 1-4 and four and 2-3 and three is is the Grand Canyon. I mean, it's massive. And a lot of that's psychologically, right? I mean, if, if, if you're 1-4 and four and you lose at Utah State, I think as players, you start to question. You start to question, is, is this the right offense for us? Or why aren't we running certain di- different defensive packages? And you start to question where, where if you can go up there and get a win, uh, and especially convincing, a convincing win, then you say, listen, we got Boise State at home, and here's our chance to put a string of, of wins together. So no doubt this, this game is, is huge. And I think that's one of those other storylines that comes into play, besides everything else we've already discussed, is the fact that this is such a crucial game. And who would have thought that this game would be such a crucial game for this BYU team coming into the season? That's what's so fun about football is it changes week to week, right? And, and uh, you know, this, this BYU team... The fact that you're staring at Utah State being a crucial win and and being a tough win, I think at this point on the road, is what's fun. And and I but I, listen, I think BYU the, the benefit if you're a BYU fan, you're listening to this. The benefit of BYU at playing at Utah State this week and playing you know a Utah State type caliber team is that you're you're not going to face anything harder than you've already faced, right? I mean, there's nothing Utah State can throw at you that's going to be more difficult than you've already faced against Wisconsin and LSU and yeah. even in Utah, right? And so the talent level is going to be a drop down from those three teams that BYU played. Schemes, et cetera, are going to be – I mean, the, the pace of play, 
you know the quickness. Everything's going to be a drop down, and so I think if you're if you're a BYU fan, you have you there. There's some I don't know. There, there's some uh, safety there in the sense that you yeah. know that that they're going to be at least be able to hang and you know hopefully put it on them. And that's the hope too is that that what you just went through that kind of back to back to back gauntlet in September, while it roughed you up a little bit and banged you up and dinged your confidence, hopefully it also steeled you and kind of created some resolve and also uh, again toughened you up for what's to come, and and to the point where we can now go prove that against a different caliber of competition, we are the team we thought we could be and can be still. So again, I think it's fascinating uh, for that reason and hopefully uh, one where BYU kind of shows itself to be the team that we expected when we saw them in August and uh, that's the hope. And uh, again, really intrigued and genuinely fascinated by what we're going to see on Friday night because I think it's massive for both teams. Uh, Time with you really flew, David, but I appreciate you coming in, making this little cameo and we will do it again for sure. Uh, And I, I think hopefully we'll do it before the season comes to a close. Maybe we'll talk in a month or so and see uh, what transpired in October and see how much of what we thought might happen actually came to pass. Yeah. So that'll be, the, uh, that'll be the hope. David, thanks for coming in. Yeah, always fun. All right, David Nixon, former BYU outside linebacker, current BYU TV analyst, coming up after the break. We'll be t- talking with Ed Eyestone, BYU's head track and field coach and men's cross-country coach, legendary runner, and uh, already developing a legendary resume as a coach here at BYU. Ed Eyestone is next. This is Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143, BYURadio.org, and the BYU Radio app. Back with Coach Eyestone right after this. Welcome back to Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel. Ed Eyestone is among the most decorated athletes BYU has ever produced, a four-time NCAA champion, a 10-time All-American, a conference champion, a school and collegiate record holder, a two-time Olympian, a multiple world championship medalist, five-time U.S. Road Racer of the Year, and those are just a few of his career highlights as a runner. As a coach at BYU, Ed has mentored 34 All-Americans, four individual NCAA champions, and one team titleist. He's been a conference coach of the year multiple times and has led the BYU men's cross-country team to top 25 finishes in every season of his coaching tenure. He is an inductee into the BYU Athletic Hall of Fame. He's been coaching the men's cross-country team in BYU and the track distance runners since 2000. In 2013, he was placed in charge of the entire track and field program, and his leadership has helped BYU maintain and enhance his reputation as a national track power. Both men's and women's cross-country squads are right now hard at work this fall and ranked in the top 20, the men currently in the top 10. He's been a writer for Runner's World, a broadcaster for some of the most well, world's most prominent media companies at some of the biggest events in the running world. And Ed Eyestone joins me now behind the mic. Ed, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Greg, great to be here. So I have to ask you, did your dream of being a Major League Baseball player once supersede your dream of being an Olympian runner? I had no idea what an Olympian runner was back in those <laughs> days because it was all baseball, of course. I grew up in the, in the 70s, in the you know, late 60s and 70s, and that's when I was playing baseball. And, of course, that was what I was going to do because that's what all little boys in elementary school wanted to do professionally. Uh, and it went, actually, according to plan, all the way through Little League. I was dominating at the Little League level, but at junior high, unfortunately, got cut from the team. And as they say, the rest is history. You're living in Ogden at this time? Yeah. Grew up in Ogden, Washington Terrace, which is a little suburb mm-hmm. in South Ogden. Uh, went to Bonneville High School and 
and all was right with us uh, baby boomers. So the baseball dream dies, and how did you end up stumbling into the world of running? Well, it, you know, in the spring of the year, that's when you're playing baseball, but that's also the time of year when uh, track is going on. So I didn't really realize that, that there was another sport until the one door was closed and uh, another one opened. Uh, I saw that the there were some of my friends that were not playing baseball that were running track, and so I wanted to try that out. My dad had actually run at the Division One level in college, and so he had told me stories of running and whatnot, and so it was kind of a natural segue at that point in time. So dad's been a runner. On your mom's side, you could even say that uh, endurance might have been in your family's blood uh, going back a number of generations. Well, we do. You know, I can count myself among many in this uh, in this great state of uh, uh, I had ancestors who walked their way uh, across the plains. And so uh, certainly that that counts as well. And, and my mom. Um, late in my career, uh, was able to think and, and actually said that um, my grandfather, my maternal great-grandfather, was, I guess, known for winning races in hmm. the greater Preston, Idaho area. So uh, give it up for Grandpa Geddes. Pretty competitive racket, I understand, back then, too, in Preston. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I had, you know, I come from a great background. Of, uh, both my parents are amazing, were amazing and uh, and were very supportive and would have been equally happy. happy. In fact, I think my my mom would have been more happy had I per- pursued a musical career over an athletic one. Both your parents were educators? Yeah, uh, yeah, they both, uh, my mom taught high school uh, clothing uh, and home economics for 30 years at Ogden High School, and my dad was a school psychologist, actually was a farmer uh, to begin with, and uh, I was born in American Samoa as a result of an assignment that he, ha- that he had from the LDS Church as a plantation manager uh, there, but when he, we came back to the States shortly after my birth, he decided to take a different route and was a school psychologist for... 30 plus years. Both your parents educators and you are one of many siblings, yes? Yeah, the youngest of five. And you were all well educated. Uh, it was a big part of your life. Well, you know, I think the my parents having the, edu- you know, being educators themselves uh, knew the importance of doing just that. And so, um, yeah, my mom actually went back to school. She had her master's degree and taught for many years and then went back to school in her m- late 50s, actually, or mid-50s, I guess. In summer, she went back to Penn State. I had a sister by then that was living on the East Coast, and she would go back in the summers, and she got her Ph.D., I think, at the age of 55, 56. And so. that's where you are right now. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're about the same time, time yeah. phrase. Going back to your youth, junior high, you start running for fun, and then as you get to high school, it becomes a bit more serious. And you've mentioned the name uh, Neville Peterman as being somebody pretty uh, um, central to your development and and, uh, really running career. Could you take us back to that? Yeah, extremely influential. In fact, I I would not have really pursued track and field and and marathoning cross-country at the level that I did had it not been for him. He was just a very enthusiastic man who took his job seriously, came down— Came, came Bonneville? Bonneville High okay. School, yeah. And he came down to the junior high, T.H. Bell Junior High, and recruited from the uh, junior high group. And I had, hadn't had a clue what cross-country was. And in fact, when he talked about cross-country, I was going, how, how is it that we're going from California to New York and during <laughs> seems the like school year? Yes, yeah. it seems yeah. like it would disrupt our studies. <laughs> um, not a real bright kid, I guess. Uh, <laughs> But um, but no, he kind of introduced us to the sport, and and more than just the sport, he kind of introduced us to the culture. 
Twitter and taught us what it was to be a real runner back then. This is before the days of the internet, certainly. And so he introduced track and field news to us and, uh, you know, just the subtle nuances that distinguish someone from just a hobby jogger to an actual competitive runner. And uh, we all bought in on that and we were doing, you know, double workouts, double, you know, two-a-day workouts uh, by the time we were sophomores in high school, and we just thought that was the normal thing to do, um, which was actually quite innovative for the in the late 70s, mm-hmm. um, at least at the high school level. And as a result, I think uh, he got the most out of out of his teams. And, and, he, and the other thing that he was awesome with was he was just passionate. He gave a darn, uh, and, and, and we could tell. And as a result, you know, he inspired us to, to you know, we would run through a wall for this man mm. because he cared and, um, you know, devoted his life in, in doing that. And he was also yeah, uh, away from athletics in the classroom. He was a special ed teacher. So we could see the dedication that he gave to that mm. particular group of students. And they also had that loyalty toward him and he towards them. And we wanted to be that sort of, uh, you know, person that was a giving person, a passionate person, and uh, certainly tried to focus that into our running. He was my first major influential coach and uh, the one that really got me on this uh, route. You were a good high school runner at Bonneville, uh, state honors, but you said in contrast to a rather injury-free career college and, and onward, high school was kind of a hit and miss that way for you. Yeah, and I guess if you were to have your druthers, if you had to have injuries, probably having them in high school maybe was the best way to go <laughs> because uh, as certainly as a professional it would have cost me financially and as collegiately it would have cost me all american honors and whatnot but uh yeah, I had a couple of stress fractures in, in high school, metatarsal stress fractures both time, and that was probably just from running too many miles in too worn-out shoes. Um, and uh, but I, but once we figured that out, once I got a little bit older and maybe the bones solidified a little bit, I, I was fortunate to have maybe twenty years relatively injury-free. Was BYU always going to happen for you? Well, when I came out of high school, or was at least a junior senior, those were kind of some of the high watermarks in terms of BYU athletics. I mean, Danny Ainge was, uh, you know, making big-time press and in terms of the basketball team. Uh, Jim McMahon was uh, throwing those long touchdowns to Danny Plater. Uh, so I saw all of that, and it was kind of an exciting thing to see on TV. And at least in terms of the state, I felt like BYU athletically had things going. I didn't know a whole lot about their track team, although as I uh, gained more information, I found out that they were – just as accomplished, if not more so, on the distance side of things with, uh, you know, Doug Padilla was here at the time. Paul Cummings had graduated. Henry Marsh had graduated. So they had a, a relative uh, string of, yeah. of very talented men who would go on and make Olympic teams. Your career at BYU included uh, so many accolades, but freshman year you had an interesting experience in Austin. Yeah, it was it was my freshman year, and uh, and I was running quite well, uh, you know, for just a 18 year old uh, kid, and had qualified for the national meet, which is always your. I'm very excited now if I ever get a freshman or even a sophomore to qualify for the national meet. So I I was excited to have made it that far, uh, but I had all American aspirations and was on course to do that up until the la- latter laps. And then uh, due to the heat and humidity, I was one of the poor guys who kind of wielded at the end and went from being All-American to being pulled off the track, you know, 
physically Literally. Just, just staggering yes yeah. and and and, uh, and and kind of blacking out and 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 by overcome by the heat um, and um, but uh, as things often happen uh, my senior year uh, the NCAA championship was going to be back at Austin, Texas, and so I was able to go back my senior uh, year and uh, win both uh, the ten thousand, which I had been, you know, so uh, ennobly dragged off the track <laughs> from. Uh, I was able to come back and win that, and then I also was able to win the five thousand meters as well. So it was, a, I guess, a fitting end, and uh, and uh, maybe compensated somewhat for for what happened my freshman year. So the spring of 85 culminates the 84-85 school year. And in the fall of that school year, 1984, you are winning the, the, the cross-country national championship, which technically gives you the triple crown of fall, fall cross-country and then the spring 5K, 10K. Well, I, 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 someone had made me aware of the fact that it hadn't been done, that someone hadn't done it for 10 or 15 years prior to that. And so, um, yeah, I, my goal was just to win every race that I ran in. And so... Um, so when it finally came to pass, then uh, I had done that, at least in the cross-country and outdoor season. Uh, and I think after the fact, someone say, oh, that's the triple crown. It's mm-hmm. not as if there's a triple crown that you're, you're, you're seeking. But I, it sounds nice and <laughs> to have, have won the triple crown I was good. But I think it, a number of years passed again until it was uh, finally accomplished again. So that, I guess that in, in hindsight, that makes it a, a bigger deal. By that time, you were also already doing some running for the country for USA in the World Cross Country Championships. That was a big part of your life then and remains now because you've done it both as a runner and as a coach. Yeah, that was fun. I think I, all told, uh, given that I was on a junior team uh, my freshman year and then I think maybe seven or eight senior teams, um, and, and that was great. Uh, back then, it was competed every year, and we had very good teams. Uh, we um, a number of times came back with medals, uh, yeah, I think a second and a couple of thirds um, as a team. And individually, I, I won the bronze uh, as a, in, in the junior race. And just lately, over the last four years, I think I've had the opportunity – well, I have had the opportunity of being the coach of the junior men's team yeah. that went to China uh, in – 2013 maybe or 14 maybe and then uh, last year uh, was able to be the senior men's coach that went to Uganda where one of your runners ran for a different country. Yes, that uh, <laughs> Rory Linkletter, um, who is our top cross-country runner right now, mm-hmm. was representing Canada. And actually, he represented Canada in both those. Uh, as a, He was on the junior team uh, when we went to China and then uh, on the senior Canadian team uh, most recently there in Uganda. And, and that's a great accomplishment in and of itself, the fact that he was on a junior team. And then two years later, the next time there was a world championship, he was on the senior team. Rarely does that happen. Usually there's a gap a uh, few years mm-hmm. for someone to develop and, and get stronger and whatnot. So, the, so he's on a great um, trajectory. Yeah, well, Rory, like you, had na- has national championship aspirations at the college level, and he's on pace. Yeah, well, he truly is, uh, because he followed that up last year in the springtime by getting second yeah. at the NCAA championships at 10,000 meters, had a, uh, a wonderful finish. In fact, I've, I'm, I'm convinced that had maybe we started that kick uh, you know, half lap earlier, he, he might have ended up coming home with the title. But to get second place your, your sophomore year is yeah. fantastic. He's got two more years ahead of him. And uh, the problem— 
that he will face is he's no longer going to be that uh, the best kept, kept secret out there. People are, are now very well aware of him, and even going into this cross-country season, I think, and depending on the rankings out there, he's ranked anywhere from uh, three to number six guy. And, uh, uh, you know, don't tell him uh, he can't do anything because he will come back and prove you wrong. He's a scrappy Canuck, and yep. he got a season off to a nice start a couple weeks ago, two of the race, or just last week. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, just at the Autumn Classic yep. a week and a half ago. Uh, we had a great turnout, nice crowd, nice support, and uh, Utah State came in, and we had some other local schools, and um, and and Roy. We have a very good team this year, but, and Rory has certainly been a great team leader. He's one of our team captains, along with uh, Clayton Young, and we had a nice, solid pack of uh of guys up there, about eight to ten guys most of the race, and then Rory uh, was able to uh, have a little better sprint in than uh, some of the other guys, but ended up uh, getting first place. And and the guy from Utah State, um, Dylan Maggart, uh, was an 11th place finisher at the National Championship cross-country meet last year. Uh, So this bodes well, that and the fact that I had about six other runners within just a couple seconds of, of Rory and Dylan. And so I think we're in in great shape. Uh, We've got a big meet coming up against the University of Oregon and Stanford on Friday up in Eugene, uh, which will be a great indicator of how good we actually are. You know, we'll find out. Right. You ranked uh, sixth nationally, I think, in the latest uh, cross-country poll nationally, men's side. Uh, We're dipping into your life as a coach a little bit. Did you get everything out of your college running career that you wanted, uh, four national championships, when you left college, did you say I did pretty much everything I wanted to do at BYU? Yeah, I, I would have loved to get an indoor title. Um, the, over the the when I came back from my mission, for whatever reason, they had made the longest race uh, either the it was the two mile I think my first year, and then they converted it metrically to three thousand meters. I think my my junior and senior year, I would have liked to have get one of those t- titles. I was second place twice in in that but a 3k for a 10k guy is uh you know you redlining up from the gun <laughs> um the year that i graduated the next year they had a 5,000 meters and i feel like those extra 2,000 meters would have um allowed me maybe to have one or two indoor titles but you know what i'm not getting greedy <laughs> it was it was a great time things went well i was injury free for that for most of that time um and i had some great mentors in in uh coach james and coach shane uh coach robison Right. Um, you know, great man that I really looked up to. And uh, so I, I couldn't really have asked for anything more. Only the very best can make a living doing what you did as a professional road racer and marathoner for a number of years. There are a couple of Olympics in there in 88 and 92. Do you look back at that time and just realize how select a few are able to have their living be what you loved doing for so many years? Yeah. You know, at the time, uh, you're just doing it because you can do it, and you assume that it will continue on. Um, I had a long career. You know, I, I I think my shoe contract went from whenever that spring that I graduated in '85 until you know, I was able to renew multiple times with uh, Reebok uh, through I think late '90s, maybe '98, '99. So all told, probably 15 years plus of having a shoe contract and then being able to win prize money and and stuff like that. Yeah, I just kind of took it for granted though. I felt like okay, this is what I. Do. I am a professional athlete. I'm going to do this for as long as I can. Um, looking back on it now, 
to realize, especially in that time, um, I was had very generous contracts, and I, I was able to, you know, again stay healthy, uh, relatively healthy, well enough to, um, you know, make a, a living, make a good living uh, at it during that time. And this is in a sport that doesn't go as deep as obviously the NBA or the NFL, or uh, you know, it'd be nice because uh, a number of those years I was the top American. It would be nice to to have been pulling in what the top uh, American NBA or NFL player, even back in in those, that era in the in the late late 80s, early 90s. Um, but having said that, um, I can't complain. It, it was a fun life. I did it for as long as I wanted to do it, uh, and I was able to make a fairly good transition uh, since that time. Do you view the Olympic experiences that you had as the pinnacle of your career? Yeah, I mean, I, I think because of the just pressure that's on just making those teams, um, I you know both those Olympic trials when I came through the trial unscathed and second uh, place both times, second, right? Second place both times, uh, and again uh, going into the trials, you you're just praying that you can make top three. I, I really believe that the trials is one of those experiences where you kind of go third and first are the same in this because uh, you just you're your goal is to make the team, mm-hmm. and in track and field and distance running, it's the top three that make it. So, uh, having gone through those and, and you know ended up at the end of them making it, when so much can go wrong, uh, and you have so many other worthy uh, champions and competitors on the starting line with you, uh, you know uh, you've been certainly have been blessed when that happens. And and so yes, uh, those are big uh, pinnacle moments. Certainly, um, you know I, I've. One thing I took pride in, I think, with my career is I felt like I ran consistently well. I, I think I, I think people could know if Ed Eisenhower is going to run in this event that he's going to do well. He's not going to be out of the money. He's going to going to put himself in there. So um, I think consistency is important in almost any aspect of life, and uh, that I was able to kind of demonstrate that over the course of my career I'm proud of. You've been coaching at BYU Cross Country since 2000. In the last four years, you've been the head track coach in addition to cross country. And uh, over your time here now, the 17th season here at BYU, you've coached All-Americans and national champions. The thrill of competition versus the thrill of coaching competitors. How's that been for you? Well, um, when you can no longer do it, it's it's the, uh, the closest, uh, you know, uh, next thing i guess when you can no longer do it it's it's nice to be able to coach people to do it and 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 you know what it's a different feeling i think it's actually more rewarding um personally um you know as an athlete it's it's a fairly hedonistic pursuit you know it's uh, all about yourself you know you got to look out for number 1 but you got to watch your nutrition it's all and and get the, your sleep and and that's the way it needs to be as an athlete to ultimately uh reach your goals, I think. Um, but as a coach, it's uh, more of a shared experience, obviously, because now when you have an athlete who competes well, uh, I think you're just able to share that experience a little better with, uh, you know, see the process, see the joy that's coming in their lives, see their families. And uh, not that you can't do that as an athlete, because certainly you derive a lot of joy in in uh, doing well, and you can see your coaches, how happy they are, and your families, how happy they are. But I guess as a coach, you, you feel like, since it's not actually you out there, it's not about me anymore, um, then 
then that's as, that's as good as you can get. When you can no longer do it, mm. it's great to be able to coach it. I think you're part of a seven-person full-time staff right now. It covers both genders and multiple pursuits. Right. An amazing staff, by the way. Just yes. an amazing group and of people that I get to hang out with all day. You team build within the staff, and then you team build among your athletes. Well, yeah, it is fun. And, and uh, you know, my the the other coaches uh, are, do a great job with their groups. And because we have combined, um, well, a roster of about 130, you know, about 130, 140, 60 to 70 on both the men's and women's tie side, so combined close to 140 athletes, it, you rely on your assistants to form uh, do do the things that Neville Peterman did, and that's build great team culture and group culture, and then uh, you try to find a way, uh, particularly within the season, to build those those great cultures that have been developed in the with the various assistant coaches into one, uh, and that's the that's the tricky part. That's the fun part, but I think that's the part that we've been demonstrating in terms of qualifying people for the NCAA track regional meet, which is the first round of the NCAA. We've mm-hmm. qualified the most, the second most people. Um, com- in combined programs this last year, so, so we had the most, the second most qualifiers to the first round of the NCAA than any other team other than Arkansas, and uh, and so so we're doing a good job with that. Could you explain your ladder ceremony, where the idea came from, and why it's so important to your group? Well, if you if you go to the Smithfield House indoor track, you'll see the top ten board, both indoor and outdoor, and top ten times or marks for each event um and so it's up high on the wall yeah it's up high on the wall yeah. you look up there and and as you as as i bring people in on recruiting visits say so you see that top 10 we would not bring you in here unless we felt like by the end you should be somewhere in that top 10 so like there's it. a goal there's an inherent goal there right yeah. now right there um and i think a lot of life is looking for opportunities to to set these great goals and then actually to celebrate those goals when you accomplish those and so uh our top 10 ceremony is uh, or a ladder ceremony is what occurs when someone does break into the top 10 and we're able to pull out the ladder and have the team there and the coach will usually get up and anytime you make the top 10 it means somebody's been bumped off the top 10 so generally the coach uh, will get up and say this is so and so been bumped from you know this is Ed Eystone. He just got bumped from the board. He was a nice guy. Uh, he you know was skinny as a rail and had bad skin, uh, but uh, you know and he's doing good things now. Uh, so we we give a little nod to the person who you know at, at one point in time we're all standing on the shoulders of those that came bef- before us, right? And right. so we like to acknowledge the the person who just got bumped, and then um, uh, then we allow the person who has made the top ten to climb the ladder, and usually their spot. Whether one through ten spot will their name will be there. They'll have a little covering of, of athletic tape, appropriately enough, mm-hmm. over that, and they're able to rip that off and show their name and, and thunderous applause. And uh, usually, a call for a speech will ensue. And, and the more and the more of those, the better, right? Yeah, you know, we, we're figuring if we're having regular top ten ladder ceremonies, then uh, then we're meeting our goals. Okay, uh, the last 10 years or so, I've been running for fitness, and, you know, my, my, my miles number, will you would scoff at it. But my wife, in, in order to uh, aid my pursuit, gave me my Runner's World subscription for years, and I got to read your stuff in there for a long, long time. There came a time when that ended. Oh, you know, yeah, writing for Runner's World, I think it was like a 10, 12-year gig. I did it from, like, 1999 to 2011 or 12. It was fun. Uh, the first year uh, <laughs> after that, uh, it became kind of like a monthly 
term paper. Uh, no, it was great. And then the, the staff at Rodale was great, and I enjoyed most aspects of it other than coming up with new material every month. Yeah. Uh, so I can appreciate what you go to, through and other communicators go through and, and certainly the print media as well, having to come up with new material. And I, and I enjoyed that for, for a time. It was kind of a monthly albatross uh, around my shoulders, and uh, there were times when I mean, my kids could generally tell when I had a column through <laughs> because Dad got great. Grumpy That's and, mood with downturn. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, but it, but seriously, it was fun, and I had some great people that I got to work with with well, that. Even though you generally wrote for more accomplished runners, uh, there were things that even a novice like mine could uh, take in and internalize, and I appreciated your contributions that way. We referenced a little bit about the teams you've got and what you feel. What do you think are, are reasonable aspirations right now for the groups you've got for this season? Again, the national rankings are already there here in the fall, both men and women. How high can you go? Yeah, they change every couple of weeks. Um, we're currently ranked sixth on the men's side, and I think about 18th or 16th on the women's side. Um, on the men's side, I'm confident that uh, we're going to going up to Oregon. Oregon's ranked number eight. Stanford will be there. They're ranked number two. Stanford is is purposely holding out three or four of their people. Uh, so I don't think they will be a factor. I think Oregon will be a strong factor. Stanford will probably still be fairly strong. Um, but I, I expect to come away from this weekend uh, having beaten both of them. I think depending on how dominant a performance we have there or how well we look, um, certainly, I'm not counting my chickens yet because Oregon will be strong at home. But if we go and we compete well, then I think we'll move up from six to whatever. Um, on the women's side, I think the women can get in a position to crack in the top 10 by the end of the season as well. Rankings in our sport, not as important as in uh, basketball or football because ultimately the only ranking that really counts is the one November 18th. That's when the NCAA championships are and uh, the top 31 teams will be there and that's when we really need to bring it. Where are you running that this year? Uh, there, it's in Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky is where it's going to be held. And, and so we're going to go out to the pre-national meet in about two and a half half weeks there, get a look at the course mm-hmm. and give us a chance to run hard there. I think we can improve on our ranking if we do well there as well. And we need to get familiar with that course because that's where we want to win a national championship. What are your personal running routines like these days? I've got a, Gus, uh, uh, I've got a dog named Gus that needs his daily exercise. So we go out about seven o'clock in the morning. We go a very slow four miles stopping on uh, uh, regular occasions for potty breaks for, okay. for Gus. Yeah, you, uh, <laughs> God, you yeah. put that in there. Uh, now, you're very slow. Not everyone else is very slow. What's, uh, what's a typical tempo for you? I don't know. I, I don't even keep a clock on it. Because if you it, go four it, miles, how long is it going to take you? Well, I, I want to do four in under 30 minutes for sure. So, uh, yeah, so it's not super fast, and, but I get it done. Ed, it's been a pleasure uh, having you in and, and chatting. Hopefully our listeners will know to watch for your guys this weekend and beyond. And then, of course, into the into the spring. And we wish you all the best to you and your staff and your athletes here in the uh, 2017-18 season. Thanks for having me, Greg. Ed Eyestone, behind the mic with Greg Grubel. Thank you, Ed. Coach Eyestone, wonderful conversation. Hope you enjoyed that. Coming up next, former BYU hoopster Mark Bigelow. We'll talk hoops. And what Mark's doing now and where he's doing it, that's all next. Mark Bigelow just ahead. This is Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143, byuradio.org, and the BYU Radio app. We're back with more after this. 
Did you know that BYU has more than 80 alumni chapters worldwide? It's a way to connect with other alumni, help students in need, and help spread the influence of the Y all around the world. Most places have chapters where you live, and there are also chapters based on what your major was or even your profession. And chapters do great things, like helping provide financial aid for more than 400 BYU students this year. Find your chapter and get connected at alumni.byu.edu slash chapters. BYU alumni, connected for good. Welcome back to Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel. Well, in the fall of 1997, 20 years ago, BYU basketball was in rebuilding mode. One season removed from a 1-25 campaign, a new head coach was in place. His name was Steve Cleveland. His right-hand assistant coach was Dave Rose. Heath Schroyer was also on the staff. And these coaches needed some new recruits to help with the rebuild. One of the very first players to commit to Coach Cleve, Coach Rose, Coach Schroyer, and the Cougars was a lanky kid out of Olympia, Washington. His name was Mark Bigelow. He had other schools interested in him, but in his words, he was raised on BYU, and Provo was where he wanted to go. His freshman season in 1998-99 saw BYU go from a nine wins the previous year to 12. Mark was named to the conference all-newcomer team, was the division freshman of the year, and BYU's leading scorer. After two years of missionary service, Mark Bigelow came back and helped the Cougs to three postseason appearances, including two NCAA tournaments, the program that to won one game the season before he committed, averaged more than 20 wins per season over his last three years. Mark Bigelow ended his BYU career in the Cougars' career top 10 in scoring, where he remains today. He's fifth all-time in three-pointers made, top 20 in field goals made, three-point percentage and steals, top 15 in free throws made, free throw percentage and consecutive games played. He's top 10 in games started and third all-time in consecutive games started. In BYU basketball's rebuilding process, Mark Bigelow had on the hard hat and did a lot of the heavy lifting as the foundations were laid 20 years ago. And Mark joins me now on the line and behind the mic. It's in our Catching Up with the Cougars segment, sponsored by BYU Alumni. BYU Alumni, connected for good. Find your chapter and get connected at alumni.byu.edu slash chapters. Mark, good to have you on. Great, great to speak with you again, Greg. So uh, I just had on a few moments ago uh, Ed Eyestone. He was an Olympian, and you also are an Olympian, but a different kind. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, uh, a little, it's it's the capital, but a little known city uh, up there in Washington. And Olympia, we were always, you know, we're about 60 miles south of Seattle, and uh so anytime we would go up and we would play those teams, they really weren't sure what, what to expect. And uh, to be quite honest, the first, uh, I think in sixth grade, we got blown out by 60 the first time we went up there and played. <laughs> but uh, by, the, by the end of, uh, of my high school career up there, they, they knew who we were and uh, we weren't looked upon. So, uh, um so poorly we'll say that well i i had a similar seattle experience mark the first ever byu basketball game i called was byu at uh, yeah. uw in 1996 the, a couple seasons before you committed and the first game i called byu lost by 51 it was 95 to 44 washington beat up on byu that one in 25 years so i i, I can relate mm-hmm. i was actually at that game <laughs> you were but i was i was at that game via UW, 
So you, the University of Washington gave me the tickets, and it was my dad and my my sister, who actually is an alum from a Husky. Um, it, and I just remember driving home with my dad, just being just fuming. I, I was still, you know, I I was being recruited. BYU wasn't even re- recruiting me at that time, and uh, so I I maybe wasn't fuming as much. But my dad on that way home, I will never forget that one. But two seasons later. It's time for you to pick a school, and, and BYU, again, is just a year removed from that 1-25 campaign. Were you at all nervous considering where BYU was as a program at that moment in time? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think, for, for one, they were really, really late to the game in recruiting me. Um, you, I don't think we have to rehash what, uh, what happened with the transition between Roger Reed and the uh, Coach Cleve, and um, but they really they were a ship without a rudder. I think for there for a little while, and I think Coach Ingle was doing his best, but he had about probably you know a thousand plates to, trying to juggle at one time, and and things were just kind of slipping through the cracks, and they didn't have a coach, and so I wasn't. I don't know if I was on the radar or whatever, but all I had received from them um, through my junior year, which is really that's a big recruiting year. At least it was back then. And was it a questionnaire? Um, and meanwhile, I'm getting recruited hard from all these other schools and, uh, especially Utah. And I, I paused for sure. Um, until it, it didn't, uh, with that said, it didn't take me too long to, to, to get on board. Um, as you, you, uh, properly introduced, I was raised on BYU. I went to the BYU basketball camps since I was fourth grade, uh, since I was in the fourth grade. And I think the only one I missed was the summer before my senior year. Um, and that was just because I was so busy with other basketball things. And, and luckily at that time they were following me, but uh, I was born and raised. And so once, uh, once they recruited me uh, and coach Cleveland uh, got on board and they they did a good job after that, yeah. and it was uh, pretty easy for me to 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 kind of jump on the BYU bandwagon again. Well, knowing where the program was, and I got involved at the same time you did, roughly, mm-hmm. and you were such a big part of of letting everyone else know when it comes to recruits that it was okay to go to BYU again and things were going to be okay. And in your freshman season, you were a starter from the get-go. The great thing is your career high came in your home state. At Washington State, that night in Pullman, you scored 33. Yeah. Um, a few games later, I think it was, um, you're scoring 24 and with nine steals, a freshman record against the number 11 team in the country, Arizona. By that point, you're probably proving to yourself that you can do it at that level, right? Yeah, a great memory, by the way, and uh, great research. But yeah, it, uh, those were, I definitely had some doubts whether I was uh, going to be able to do that. I think I was aptly uh, said there. I, uh, Coming in, I wasn't even sure I was going to play because they had Ron Solis uh, at my position. Um, I was recruited and uh, thinking I was probably going to come off the bench. And then when everything went down with uh, Ron and he wasn't able to be on that team that that year, um, I remember Cleve coming to me and and telling me to get ready. Um, And I, I definitely had some doubts whether I could do it and uh, before you know it, it just uh, things started falling in place for me, and uh, in terms of scoring wise and such, and yeah, those were some fun fun games. I I remember 
losing them. Uh, <laughs> both Washington State and Arizona, I, re- I definitely remember losing them. Um, but o- I remember overtime with the Wildcats. The- What's that? Overtime with the Wildcats, as I recall, right? Yes, yes, yes. That was. I, I mean, we really. It's there's a couple games in my life. Well, probably more than a couple, but a few that I really that stick out to me, and that was one of them. Where I think we had it. We uh, we were trading baskets with them, and we were up in the end. And um, before overtime, we I think we had a shot to win it. We just we we couldn't finish it off, and then. Mike Vrains fouls out, and we kind of sputter out. But that was a fun, fun game. It was a Jason Terry team, I think, Arizona that year. So you, yes. you played your freshman year, and then it was missionary service for two Ooh. years in Florida. Uh, you came back, and by the time you came back, it's so crazy because when you committed, it's the first year of, again, a rebuilding staff and yeah. a rebuilding program. You come back, and they've already been to the NCAA tournament now. Yeah. They made it back to yeah. the dance, which kind of said, yeah, we are all the way back. And now you're part of a team that, that goes from you know ha- one year out of a one-win season. Now they're expecting to dance every year, and you got to two more. Yeah, it, it was uh, – look, I, I committed to BYU fully expecting to, uh, to make it to the NCAA tournament. Uh, and – I believed in what Coach Cleveland was doing, and I was, I had, was really lucky to have good coaches growing up. And uh, in high school, I was groomed for my high school coach to believe big, no matter what, no matter the odds. And uh, so when I committed, that's what I that was my goal and that was my belief. And um, so it it made me happy. It made me really happy. I when I came back and we were at that level. Um, you know, I think. Uh, it was we we had some really good teams, and to be quite honest, I, I would say we were a disappointment. My junior and senior years not getting further in the tournament. We had we had a we had a rough we had a rough draw against Connecticut. They were a really good team, but we played them really tough. I think if we had other maybe another team, we could have got past them. Um, and then my uh, senior year, I think. Again, I, I, I'm sure that many Cougar fans remember that where Jerry McNamara went off. Yeah. But we were up 15, and um, we and, were the, and got Syracuse I, 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 out of their this, zone. To this, yeah, oh yeah, and we, we we knocked them out of that zone 10 minutes into it because we were hitting shots and, and we were ready. You know, we were really prepared. We could pass the ball, and and then uh, we just we lost. But to this day, I believe we were a better team than that. But uh, overall, it was a it was a wonderful ride. Visiting with Mark Bigelow here on Behind the Mic. Uh, after his mission, we just hit those uh, postseason appearances. Uh, sophomore year was an NIT with guys like Travis Hansen and Eric Nielsen and Matt Montague. The junior season, that UConn game back in Mark's home state. We're back in Spokane now. And uh-huh. it was it was Hoffa and Lou Lemus and Travis Hansen again. Then the senior year, it's Hoffa, it's Mike Hall, it's Mike Rose, and so many other names. Uh-huh. But uh, uh, two five-point losses in the NCAAs to UConn and Syracuse, respectively. Uh, you, as a collegian, uh, married a BYU women's soccer player, yes? Mm-hmm. And her name yes, is correct. Tara, right? Yep, correct. And uh, where are you living now? Uh, how's your family uh, situated? How many in it? Uh, what's your career like? And, uh, and, and because somebody asked me this morning, are you back in Washington? I said, no, you're not in Washington. And I promised people you'd tell us where you're living now. <laughs> oh, well, uh, we are, so Tara and I, I've been really all over the place since since BYU. We've been in the Bay Area. We were overseas for four years right after BYU. Then we were the Bay, uh, Washington. 
and we are in the Bay Area, and uh, we current, and then we are in upstate New York, and now we're currently residing in Eagle, Idaho, which is well, I mean, most <laughs> I'm sure most uh, BYU fans know where that is due to Tanner Mangum, but uh, yeah, we live in Eagle, Idaho, just right outside of Boise. We have four beautiful kids, a daughter, uh, two sons, and then another daughter. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm a serial entrepreneur. You, you take for that for what, it, what it's worth. I uh, invest in some businesses, own a couple businesses, and, uh, and traveling around, doing a little bit of development as well. And uh, enough to keep busy and uh, trying to coach my kids as, as much as possible and and live and participate in in my church calling and and that's about it. I'm a I'm a pretty pretty normal boring uh boring Joe these days, but you, it's, uh, you, it's, you, a, it's a really good life. You've got a couple of former BYU play uh, teammates that are kind of in your neck of the woods too, living, don't you? Yeah. Oh yeah. The, uh, Ricky and and Danny Bauer literally li- our work uh, seven minutes away from my from my house and. We've uh, we just actually reconnected a, a month or so ago, and um, it'll it'll be fun to be with them and maybe get our kids kids together and, and take Idaho by storm in the future. There, <laughs> in the last minute I've got with you, uh, I saw you and Ricky together at the BYU Alumni mm-hmm. uh, Day event just about ten days ago. Uh, just in the last minute I got with you here, what 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 a cool day that was to reconnect and uh, and get get back with the program, wasn't it? Oh man, it was a it was long overdue, and uh, it uh, I was waffling whether I was going to make the make the trip down. And Luis Lemus gives me a text and and asked if I was going to go. And I said, "Well, I'm not sure." And he said, "Well, I'm not going to I'm not going to fly ten hours to see nobody." So I uh, I said, "All right, I'm there." And it was it it couldn't have been a better experience just to see everyone chat hug and and renew old acquaintances that uh, you've gone to war with so many times for sure and uh certainly you'll keep an eye on the guys the current cougars right and uh, find out what they're doing as this season t- uh, gets underway here in, in about a month no always i'm uh i'm as big a fan as anyone and um so i i wish them luck i hope they uh they have an unbelievable season and uh they can prove everyone wrong so Mark, all the best to you and your family. Thanks so much for taking a few minutes and uh, joining me tonight on Behind the Mic. Thanks a lot, Greg. Take care. All right, that's Mark Bigelow, former Cougar Hoopster. Mark Bigelow, our final guest on tonight's Behind the Mic with Greg Grubel. Our thanks to the entire guest lineup this evening. We began the hour with David Nixon, former Cougar linebacker and current BYU TV analyst. We then heard from BYU legendary runner and now runner coach. The head coach of BYU Track and Field, immense cross country at Eyestone. And then just to wrap up the show, Mark Bigelow, moments ago. All right, thanks to all, and thanks to you for tuning in, Cougar Nation. We'll see you next Wednesday, 6 o'clock Mountain, 8 o'clock Eastern, for Behind the Mic with Greg Grubel on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143, BYURadio.org, and the BYU Radio app. Catch us on podcast. Subscribe to Behind the Mic on all major podcast platforms. Till next Wednesday, I'm Greg Grubel saying goodnight and so long.